Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Way to be here on this rainy time change Sunday. So I saw Peter a second ago. Uh, for being here, you all win a prize. I'll buy you all a free coffee after church in the coffee shop on me. So I want to actually begin uh, this morning. You're going to want a Bible. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to Romans 16 as we come near to the end of this book. But then also, uh, um, I wanted my wife to just read this final chapter, or part of this final chapter for us as we open God's Word together. Good morning. Uh, we're in Romans 16, starting in verse 1. Our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Sincrea, will be coming to you soon. Receive her in the Lord as one who is worthy of high honor. Help her in every way you can, for she has helped many in their needs, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. They have been co-workers in, the, in my ministry for Christ Jesus. In fact, they risked their lives for me. I'm not the only one who is thankful to them. So are all the Gentile churches. Please give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. He was the very first person to become a Christian in the province of Asia. Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Then there are Androconus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are respected among the apostles and became Christians before I did. Please give them my greetings. Say hello to Ampliatus, who I love as one of the Lord's own children, and Urbanus and our co-worker in Christ, and beloved Stachys. Give my greetings to Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves. And give my best regards to the members of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet the Christians in the household of Narcissus. Say hello to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers. And to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. And also his dear mother, who's been a mother to me. And please give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Give my greetings to Philolochus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and to Olympus, and all the other believers who are with them. Greet each other in Christian love. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. And now I make one more appeal, my dear, dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things that are contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to see clearly what is right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you. So Romans 16, it can uh, sometimes be viewed as this uh, kind of a throwaway chapter. You know, it's just a list of names, the end of Paul's book, sort of a, a shout out, uh, final greeting at the end of this letter. And so a tendency to even disconnect from the deep theology and, uh, and, and um, the depth and richness of the first 15 chapters of Romans and then Romans 16. But really, Romans 16 embodies the point of everything that Paul has been writing up until this point. It's Paul's desire to create a unified family from which to launch mission out to the ends of the earth. This missional family that would love one another and be an example and an embodiment of God's love for the world. And so Paul mentions almost 30 different people throughout this chapter. And so we're going to look at the significance of what Paul of, of some of these people. We're also going to look at a problem that these people stir up or make us aware of, a key practice, and then God's promise in it. So the people, the problem, the practice, and the promise. Four Ps, like a good preacher wants to do every Sunday. So here we are in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
a servant of the church, diakonos. Some of your translations, the translation Sadie just read, deacon. That's where we get that word. The word servant or diakonos literally means a table waiter. So any of you have been ever waited on at a table uh, by a server, that is the, the, the original root meaning in Romans, uh, in, the, in the Greek, sorry, is uh, it's just something that served at the table. The Christian uh, church quickly co-opted that into their language and, that, and the dominant meaning became one, a spiritual servant, the symbol of loving care for others. And with that word, it carries a sense of, of spiritual weight, of significance. She has with her a, a spiritual authority, this Phoebe. He also calls her a helper, a patron of many, including myself. That word patron is, is a guardian, a protector, a patroness, one that cares for the affairs of others and aids them out of their own resources. So what we know about Phoebe is that she's a person of significance, a person of spiritual depth, a person of authority, a person of means. But also... Remember, Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He's writing this letter as a preparation for the trip that he hopes to go on, to prepare a people from which he can launch on mission to Spain, to the ends of the earth. And it was understood by the early church that Phoebe, as he's commending the, uh, Phoebe to the church where they're going, remember this is written in a letter on a parchment, and it would have been hand-delivered. They didn't have the, the USPS or FedEx at that point. It would have been delivered from a person in a very precarious time when persecution was rampant. And so there's a lot of danger with the delivery of any kind of letter. And so, uh, so it was understood that Phoebe actually is the one that carried the letter of Romans from where Paul was writing in Corinth. We know she's from Sincrea. It's about five miles south of Corinth. Uh, from Corinth to Rome. Now, the amazing thing about that is that Paul was entrusting this Phoebe with this letter, similar to how Jesus entrusted the news of his resurrection to that first group of women. But not only would she have been meant to deliver this letter, it would have been expected that she would have been the one to read this letter, which is why I asked my wife Sadie to read this, uh, this morning. Because it would have been in the context of a living room situation, of a house church there in Rome, that Phoebe would have arrived carrying this precious cargo, what we now know of as Paul's Magna Carta, the, 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 the premier work of his uh, theological depth. This beloved, uh, this, this treasured letter. But not only should, would she have been expected to read the letter to the church, to be received by the church, but she would have been expected to explain it if they had any questions. So it was, under, it, it was assumed by the early church that she was probably at Paul's shoulder while he was writing this letter from Corinth to the church in Rome. So we have this lady, Phoebe, not just a throwaway name, but a powerful woman of the early church who was expected to be able to carry this incredible treasure of this, this deep book. Now, how would you have liked to have been the one to first carry Romans to the church? I mean, it's a, a, such an honor, right? But then also to have been the one that if they had any questions about Romans, that you would have had an answer. And so we have high praise for Phoebe, this servant of the church. It continues on. The next person he mentions is another woman, Priscilla, and her husband, Aquila. Now, Paul, we know, lived with Priscilla and Aquila for approximately 18 months. You can read about them in Acts chapter 18. An amazing couple. Now, we've had people live with us for long periods of time. Uh, in our old house, in our new house, we've had uh, Savannah and Sam. We, we've had uh, different uh, a young couple that had just gotten married in our old house that moved into our basement. And so when you live with somebody for any extended period of time, you get to know them pretty well. The good and the bad and the ugly, amen? And so Paul lived with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And, uh, and they did the work. They were tent makers like Paul. They were one of the first people that he met when he, uh, when he went to Corinth. Where they, we know that they were Jews that had originally been from Rome. So he probably was known to many of the families that were currently in Romans, but they're still in Corinth uh, based on this letter. And, uh, and they would have 
if you remember that the context of Romans, we talked about this way early on, was that, uh, that Claudius, the emperor, had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And so there was this mass expulsion of the Jews out of Rome. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were part of that Jewish expulsion, uh, that anti-Semitism, and they found a kind of a place there. And so the tent makers, it was presumed, were probably refugee settlements that they were building, that they were making these tents for. Paul also had that profession. And so it would have been a, it would have been a high need in that time. And, uh, but when Romans was being written, Claudius had died, and so the edict of uh, no Jews in Rome had, had come to an end. And so the Jews were making their way back. Priscilla and Aquila hadn't yet made their way back, but, uh, but we have all of these Jewish people coming back into what now would have been a pro- primarily Gentile church. And so Paul gives this shout-out to this couple that has meant so much to them. We know a few things that he mentions here. One is that somehow uh, that they, it says they risked their necks for me. Somehow they went to such an extent, or they, they put themselves at such grave danger that they literally risked their lives on his behalf. We also know that Priscilla and Aquila were the ones that, remember uh, in Acts 18, that, that Apollos, the, the golden-tongued preacher, that came in at this, uh, this, this fiery young Jew that becomes a follower of Jesus, and, and he begins to, to, to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues, but he doesn't quite have it all right yet. He's on fire, he's passionate, he's zealous, but he's not very wise. And so it says Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they actually disciple, uh, they, disciple Apollos. And then he goes on from them and has incredible fruit in other cities. And so we see, I, I apologize, I worded that wrong. They're back in Rome now, leading a house church there, back in their hometown. We have Epinitus, or Ep, if I'm saying that right. Sadie and I were comparing names in the back to make sure we said them right, and I have no idea what we decided on there. But we know he's the first con, uh, convert, the literal uh, Greek word there is first fruit um, to Christ in the province of Asia, which is pretty cool and quite a claim to fame. The very first follower of Jesus in an entire, er, entire region or continent that we know of now. And then we have Mary, and I love the phrase, Mary who worked hard for you. I love that Paul begins this letter with, these sh- with a shout-out to, at the very beginning, these, these accolades and these affirmations to these strong women in the church who are leading the church, that are hosting the church in their homes, providing for the church. Aren't you thankful for the incredible strong women that work so hard for our church? I mean, I just think about it. so many of you in this room that labor faithfully for the good news of Jesus, that others would come to know him and grow in their faith, that sacrifice for others. It actually grieves me, this uh, narrative that's being spread in regards to that the Bible is a misogynistic book. In other words, that word literally means that the Bible hates women. When the reality is, is the Bible is the most woman-empowering book in the history of the world. Look at the way that Jesus treated, talked about, and empowered women. Look at the way that Paul treated, talked about, and empowered women. And just here at the end of Romans 16, when uh, the, 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 the prime book in Paul's library, his greatest work that we would argue, he comes to a close and he exalts these incredible women who have worked hard for the gospel. And so I say that because if there's a woman here that has been wounded or felt forgotten or insignificant by the church in your past, I am sorry, and it is a lie. You are seen by God. You are known by God. You are filled by the Spirit. You are gifted by God. And you are empowered by God in Christ 
to be used in powerful and significant ways for his kingdom. I thought I'd get at least one amen out of that, but shocked you into silence. Because we get this next uh, couple that actually is really fascinating as Paul continues. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. Like they're, they're like family to me and fellow prisoners. Well-known or outstanding among the apostles. They're well-known. In a church... As our church continues to grow, one of the things as uh, there was always an interesting tension uh, when we in the first few years of Grace Monroe, and it's still, I mean, it's still there, is this, um, is that people would come to Grace and they would talk about how much they love, they'd say there's two things that they loved. One was they loved how close-knit it was, like family, like a small church where I can really be known. But they also loved how vibrant and growing and, and, and fruitful and all the things that were happening. Now, listen to those two things that we love. Because they're actually mutually exclusive. For something to be small and intimate, where I can be known and loved, and everyone knows my name, like cheers. And also that it's growing. And so as this church continues to grow, and despite the rainy time change Sunday that, you know, would tell us otherwise, uh, that, that we, there is this space that we, we need an environment, we need space where we are well known, where people know us even more than our name, they know our hearts. We need to belong to that smaller community of people where we're known, not just recognized. Now, it's also fascinating because, actually, of Junia's history. Origen, in the second century, commented on her, and, and actually, he, he believed that she may have been one of the 72 from Luke 10 that Jesus sent out. Jerome, in the third century, recognized her as an outstanding apostle. John Chrysostom, in the fifth century, wrote about her, to be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles think what a wonderful song of praise that is indeed how great was the wisdom of this woman that she was considered an apostle so the first 1200 years of church history there was no controversy junia exalted with her husband adronicus as well known as uh, as outstanding among the apostles but then in the 13th century it all changed uh, a well-meaning but pretty presupposing scribe named Edigius in Rome changed that Greek name from Junia, which is feminine, to Junius, which is masculine. This is the difference between Julia and Julius, like Julia Roberts versus Julius Caesar or Julius Irving. One little letter, a whole different meaning, and translates it as these honorable men. So from that point, the reformers continued that thought. And what reason did he give for that change? Well, it was pretty simple. A woman could not have been an apostle. But because a woman couldn't have been an apostle, this woman here who's called out as among the apostles must not have therefore been a woman. So poor Junia gets a sex change 1,300 years after she dies. This is crazy because uh, the name Junia is actually a very common name back then. There's over 200 inscriptions or references to women named Junia on headstones, other historic sites. There are zero references to anyone ever named Junius. And Paul calls them my kinsfolk, as those related to me. It's not presumed that they actually literally were family for biological family for Paul, but instead this is the language of missional family. This exalted couple working among those sent by God, this Lord Apostle, what that means, the sent ones were like family to me, Paul says. I know the power 
And many of you have experienced the power of spiritual family, missional family. As Hebrews uh, tells us, you know, that to continue gathering together, but why? To spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We need that missional family around us, those men and women that come alongside us, that serve as brothers and sisters that are like family. We also know family's messy, amen? We disappoint each other, we frustrate each other, we annoy the snot out of each other sometimes. Sometimes we just want to love the crap out of one another with a good punch to the throat. And yet we, (laughs) there's an amen. (laughs) You're almost about to get a punch to the throat. (laughs) But we also love each other and we laugh together and delight in each other and are for each other and cry with each other. We've had this in our lives. We have this in our lives. I think of my friend Tyler, who I've known since high school. It was my closest friend through college, so much so that after college, we moved in together and lived for two years being discipled together, launching ministry, young life into the schools together. He knew the ugliest parts of me, and he knew the best parts of me. And sometimes my blind spots, he needed to point out the ugly, and sometimes in my insecurity, he needed to remind me of the good. And he's still 20-something, almost 30 years later, is who I will call when I'm at my lowest and who I will call when I want to celebrate something good in my life. And if there's ever a moment in which my life was falling apart, I know he would be there at the drop of a hat. And I would the same for him. Last night, we gathered men's advance, 80 men, Worshiping, eating, sharing together is a beautiful, just a wonderful night. But the, the primary focus, and this was not planned at all, that we'd end up in Romans 16 at the same time uh, that that would have, that uh, last night was happening. But it was, who is my 2 a.m.? We say that one of our, uh, one of our marks of discipleship here at Grace is, uh, is that we'd be real, that we'd have authentic, that a healthy disciple has authentic, real relationships with one another and the key question we ask is who is your 2 a.m who is that person that in the middle of the night if your world is falling apart that you would call and they would show up and vice versa that every one of us needs a 2 a.m and and the challenge to us as men which i thought was a very uh, timely and powerful challenge was that though we struggle sometimes with our own um, insecurities or uh, and to be vulnerable that we to really flourish as all that God has made us to be, need that kind of man in our lives alongside of us. So Paul knew the power of spiritual family. He continues on in 13, talking about Rufus and his mother, but then he adds another little note, who is also like a mother to me. I love that. We say here at Grace that we want to raise up a generation of spiritual fathers and mothers. Those that care for and lead and empower and raise up the next generation, not just their own biological children, but spiritual children. That you are called by God to move from being a son and daughter of the king to becoming a spiritual mother and father for the family. I have an amazing mom, biological mom, Bonnie. Most of all of you know who she is. Actually, it's her birthday tomorrow, so make sure you say happy birthday to my mom. But I also have had, uh, experienced the power of having spiritual mothers in my life. Women who spoke truth to me. Think about Jody Hoffman, who I said earlier, Tyler and I lived together uh, for two years after college. It was Jody, alongside Buddy, that opened her home, opened her basement to us, that we shared a dinner table with, that spoke truth, that illuminated the scripture to us in fresh ways. I think about Leanne Boone. uh, Leanne was Greg's, is Greg's wife, Greg, who led me to the Lord when I was in eighth grade. Who still remembers my birthday and 
is one of the greatest, uh, was one of the greatest encouragements in my spiritual life through my teenage years. Many of you right now can think of the spiritual mothers and fathers in your life. Those women that may not have raised you by birth, but raised you in the Lord. And what high praise for Paul to look at this woman and say, she, she was like a mother to me. And so the challenge, well, twofold. One is maybe to honor the spiritual mothers and fathers in your own lives, but also to see, okay, God, how are you calling me to be that for somebody else? And we continue on, and we, we get this list of names that are kind of a, a, a chunk together. We have Apelius that approved in Christ, those of the household of Aristobulus, Herodian, my kinsmen, the household of Narcissus. These are the heads of households and nobility. Aristobulus was, considered, was, was known as the grandson of King Herod. He's actually attested to in archaeological excavations. Herodian, Paul points out that he's a fellow Jew, but then it's interesting because the next person he names is Narcissus, who was a well-known, wealthy Roman and secretary of Claudius the emperor. So you have the wealthy and the elite side by side as Jew and Roman. But then later in the, in the passage, Romans 16, Paul mentions two other people, Tertius and Cordus. Tertius is actually the scribe who is working there with Paul. And their names literally, and this is interesting, their names literally mean third, Tertius, and fourth, Cordus. These were slaves. They don't even have names. They have numbers. And Paul calls them dearly beloved family. There's a little side note. It's interesting. Uh, in Romans 16, we have Tertius and Cordus, third and fourth. In Acts 20, though, you have Segundus, which means second. Now, what's understood in Roman culture is that they were that those names would have been uh, their their role in the household where they served. These are bond servants that, that would have been assigned to a master for whatever reason. And so you have this, you have a second in the New Testament. You have a number two, a number three, and a number four, but there is no primus or first. So some commentators have wondered. Who is the missing first bondservant of the Bible? And then they point to Philippians 2, 6. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be uh, used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, a bondservant, a slave being made in human likeness. So who's the primary, primus slave of the Bible? Jesus. But get this picture of community. You have Jews and Greeks, Romans and Asians. You have ethnic diversity. You have men and women leading together. You have gender diversity. You have slaves and nobility, economic diversity. So you can see how this whole thing is ripe for division. And this is the problem. This is the driving motive of Paul's letter. Is that the dissension and division is starting to threaten what God wanted to bring together for good. That there are obstacles that the strong are putting in front of the weak. There are heresies that Paul has been very careful to address. And that the, this division, this dissension that is beginning to percolate in this young church has the potential at a minimum to hinder the work that God is wanting to do in and through them, and worst case, to tear the church apart and to undermine faith in Christ, both for the believers there and the potential believers that don't even know Jesus yet. This is a huge issue. 
And yet the level of division that would have been simmering in this church is unfathomable even in our world today. We may be sitting with somebody that has a different political persuasion than we do, but you're not sitting next to somebody who owns your family. But remember, this is the very thing that Jesus prayed for in his final prayer in John 17. It's what Paul alludes to in Galatians, that in Christ there is no slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, but all are one. John 17, 20, Jesus praying, my prayer, this is Jesus' prayer, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one in them and you and me so that they may be brought together in complete unity. And then, Jesus says, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then in verse 20, Paul links this divisiveness and this potential division to crushing Satan under your feet. That Paul connects this division and deception to Satan. Now this is serious, intense, that from the beginning, Satan has wanted to tear God's things apart. In Genesis 3, you see how Satan, the serpent, the deceiver, snuck his way into the conversational relationship that mankind was intended to share with God, intimate, fully known, and fully loved, to tear man and woman apart from God and apart from one another. In Genesis 4, you see Cain and Abel and a family torn apart. And then from Genesis onward, you see that the, that the division and destruction moving from individual to couple to family to community to society to the whole world at large. And so from the beginning, God has been trying to restore what Satan has tried to destroy. To make all things new. And in Christ... Jesus, whose death on the cross, whose blood that was shed, that offers the forgiveness of sins to reconcile us back to God and to restore relationship one with another. That all of a sudden our stories and our backgrounds, our struggles and our weaknesses, our strengths and our gifts, our stories and our fears, all of it comes together as this one united missional family that embodies the love of God. And Paul gives in these verses, in a word, the key practice to solving this problem. And the word, or the practice, is hospitality. The word over and over again in this chapter, greet. Greet one another. Greet one another. Greet this person and this person. This is who they are. My, a mother to me, like my family to me. A powerful leader to me. Made sacrifices and risked themselves for me. Greet, greet, greet. This was a critical practice of the early church, but when we read that word, we miss it. Because to greet doesn't mean just simply say hello. This wasn't Paul's shout out to the early church. That word means, literally the word means to embrace, to warmly receive. It 
It expresses a deep attachment. And when it's in a letter as a greeting from a distance, it was a word that implied intimate personal fellowship. So you didn't just simply greet, you embraced. To open one's heart, to open one's life to, to one another. In fact, at church, in church world today, I wonder how often we greet each other with a hello and miss greeting each other with our hearts. That I can be closed off to you and put up a false face and pretend and you never know me though I smile and say hi and when you ask me how things are, I say they're good, maybe busy. And what Paul is writing to this church, gathered just like this, but in living rooms across that city, open your hearts to each other. Open your heart to this person and open your heart to this person. Remember who they are and remember what they've done. Remember that they are family and you need them. And yes, it's messy and there are times that we're going to have to forgive each other, but open your hearts to each other because you need a place where you are known and loved. You are seen. Not just you have a seat. And the reality is that as we said, since we planted this church, that our heart, that our, our vision was to see a, a movement of missional families, a movement of families on mission in this community, saturating these neighborhoods. But we will never multiply missional family if we don't prioritize hospitality, opening our hearts and homes to one another and to others. That if we just sit here next to each other on Sunday mornings, but don't create time and space for each other the rest of the week, we're missing something crucial. We can't be family with 400 people. There's not a house big enough. But throughout the week, we can gather together and be well-known and well-loved. And this is what we can press into intentionally that will truly change us and change the world. So Paul links this practice of hospitality with this problem of division and this promise of God crushing Satan underfoot, which goes back to Genesis 3 in the, in the, in the fallout of the original division, the original schism between Adam and Eve and between Adam and Eve and God. God makes a promise, and what he says there is that one day there will be a man who comes, Satan, who, will, who you will strike. You will strike him a blow, but he will crush your head. And then Paul points back at the end of Romans 16 and said, there's one who's come who is crushing the head of Satan and all the division and the pain that he has brought into this world, this one Jesus will heal. That's good news. Amen. And so remember in Acts 2, I mean, the, the early church lived into this. This was their reality. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have services. They devoted themselves to one another. To sharing meals, to breaking bread, that is taking communion, remembering the body of Christ broken for them together. They practiced hospitality and it was more than convenience. It was about covenant. So Romans 16 shows us that belonging to a missional family, and hear this, belonging to a missional family is just as important as receiving your personal identity. Belonging to a missional family is just as important as receiving your personal identity. 
that as important as it is, I know that we all want to know the name God calls us, who we are to him. We all want to know what God has uniquely created us to do. But just as important as knowing who you are and what God has made you to do is knowing who he has called you to do it with, because you cannot do this alone. Christianity was never meant to be a Lone Ranger sport. And as amazing as Paul was, what Romans 16 and actually the entire New Testament makes clear, Paul never did it alone. Jesus, though he went to the cross by himself, he did not minister alone. The church was created by the Spirit of God, bringing people together from the very beginning. Missional family is just as critical as personal identity because you are more than you think you are, but you need community to become all that you are. Now, why has God set it up that way? Well, Jesus has referred to it, Paul has referred to it, is that our efforts to love each other, even in our mess, even in the difficulties and the struggles, and the need for forgiveness, our efforts to love each other well have prophetic significance to the world. Over and over again, your love will show them who I am. Your love for one another. John 13, by this, they will know that you truly are my disciples. And this isn't just some touchy, sentimental love where everyone, you know, pats each other on the back and, oh, you're amazing and cute dress and I love your hair. No one ever tells me that. Thank you. I'm glad you didn't say cute dress. <laughs> but gritty, real, humble, sacrificial love not feel good love I mean think about Philippians 1 Paul's prayer for that church in Philippi this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more I mean that sounds good right who doesn't want that for Grace Monroe that our love would abound overflow more and more but listen to the rest of the verse in knowledge and depth of insight that we need love and discernment to be loved and known. We need discerning love. Where my flaws and failures and struggles and insecurities are known and I am still loved. Where you love me as I am and I love you as you are but I love you too much to let you stay that way in our society today love 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 but it's a love that is meant to be loved blindly in the moment that you point out some flaw or failure or question me or uh, or, or disagree with me then you must not love me and Jesus says, no, we can love in truth. And actually only truth is true love. And so Romans 16, this beautiful picture of Paul's missional family. The question it leaves us with, Who's yours? Who's yours? For Sadie and I, for 20 years, that family has been the Keys and the Stallsmiths and the Rhodes. We had babies together and grew up in ministry together. And even though we live in three complete different places they still love us and know us the other day we had a zoom dinner together and all of us are having you know different things that we're wrestling through in our families and our 
jobs, the different people have different struggles, and in the, over dinner, everyone just very honestly shared, and at one point, uh, everyone on the Zoom call is just, it's just crying. I mean, just like sobbing together as they're just vulnerably sharing, this is where I am. This is where I need you. And then we show up for each other. As we moved to Monroe, God has surrounded us again with just missional family, not just uh, those that live in different states, but those that actually live in community with us that see our lives on a day-to-day basis. We can't do this alone. And the same is true for you. When we talk about grace groups, (laughs) we're not just talking about the church thing you're supposed to do, a 12-week study, or you sign up for a small group. We're talking about a, a community of people that truly know us and love us, that are family to us. Not because it's what we're supposed to do, but because it's what we were created to experience. And so our heart as a church is to create that kind of space, to foster that kind of space. But the reality is, community isn't something that you can simply sign up for. Or something that you, that somebody else can make for you. something that you join that you either open up your house and start creating one or you go to a house that's been open to you and you join one it's something that you engage in together no one can do it for you because you can go to a small group for 12 weeks in a row and never be known and you can also keep your house closed because it's a little too messy and you haven't vacuumed And there's dirty clothes laying in the hallway. And the best thing you can cook is peanut butter and jelly. And all of those lies that keep you from ever experiencing the very thing that God wants you to have. Who is the God inviting to be missional family? Or, just as important, who is that missional family for you already? And what does it mean to honor, to celebrate to be intentional with them because I don't want to presume actually I would knowing as I look and see your faces so many of you live in that reality right now you embody that reality right now but for some of you you just haven't named it yet so I want to pray for us we're going to worship together and I want to ask God to highlight feels like a God's doing something this weekend between men's advance last night and being in Romans 16 today. Next week, we'll look at missional family in the home and some of the practices and what that looks like. The following week, we'll look at being on mission in our workplace. We'll come across a couple of really interesting guys at the end of Romans 16. But, uh, and then we'll be done with Romans. That's crazy. Here we are. But I want to pray right now that uh, God would just, even in this space, Sunday morning, this rhythm of weekly worship and opening the word together, that God would highlight for you a way that you can engage in this week in a very real, tangible way. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that even as I'm speaking, Lord, and, and that you would use these words of mine, that actually that it, more important would be your truth by your spirit and your scripture speaking into our hearts. And Lord, I do pray right now for each individual sitting here, Lord, that you would surround them with a community of faith that feels like family. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here right now that feels alone, even surrounded by people, they feel unseen or unknown, Lord, would you speak a word into their heart even right now? that you as a good father see them, you hear them, you love them, you embrace them, you open yourself to them. May they receive your love, even in a fresh way this morning. 
And so right now, Lord, I pray, will you highlight in our minds who that family is you've placed around us, Lord? And Lord, if, it's, if there are people that we are intentional with and it's a part of our regular rhythms, that you'll deepen the bond of affection and love for one another and the willingness to be honest and real and vulnerable, to speak truth in love to each other to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Will you truly create pockets of missional community around, missional family around this city? Lord, for those that don't have that intention, but there's some people out there that you're bringing to mind, give them the courage to create rhythms and sacrifice, to say no to some things, to say yes to your best, to your desire. Lord, to build into their lives that rhythm of healthy family on mission. And that even this week with a text or a call, coffee or a conversation, that they would take a step forward to building that kind of family rhythm into their lives. And then Lord, for those that no one comes to mind, they don't even know where to begin. Lord, I pray with them as they pray, Lord, that you would highlight for them even this week the people that would be around them, the places that they could go, that they could begin showing up with intention. Will you bring people alongside of them in love? So right now, Lord, we pause and just ask, will you call to mind what is the next step of faith you're inviting us to make. Let these words, these beautiful words of Romans 16 shape our hearts, our church, and our community more and more into the image of Christ and his body. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.